Good evening. Tonight we are going to be <clears throat> talking about the Gospel of John, and uh, I'm, I'm excited to talk about this, one of the more fascinating books of the Bible. In fact, I'd say that this is probably my favorite book of the entire Bible <laughs> tonight. So, uh, but the Gospel of John, uh, we will always begin with what I call the vital statistics, the who, what, when, where, and why behind the book so that we can kind of create, create kind of a perspective uh, or oversight of the book, what it's about, uh, and particularly why was it written and what is the message that we should be uh, looking to derive from it. In this case, of course, the Gospel of John is named after John the Apostle, uh, even though his name, as with all the other uh, Gospels, is not mentioned. Yet in verse 21, he kind of, or chapter 21, excuse me, in verses 20 and again in verse 24, he kind of self-identifies when he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, which becomes kind of an epithet throughout, uh, fr from that point forward in history of referring to the Apostle John. Uh, <clears throat> he says of himself, this was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper or at the last supper. And then he adds, the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down, we know that this is his testimony and is true. That's a fascinating statement because what it really indicates is that the person who's actually composing our final edition, if you will, was really more of an editor. But he speaks of John having written these things down and he is more of a compiler putting all this together in the form in which we have it today. Uh, we know that John was known uh, and identified uh, as the one whom the Lord loved more so than any of the other disciples. Not that there was favoritism, but there was a, a, some kind of a natural bond that they had between themselves. Uh, Mark identifies him as being the brother of James uh, and one of the sons of Zebedee. Jesus called him the sons of thunder was his nickname for him because I think they tended to be pretty expressive personalities. They're those kind of people who are either all in or all out. There's no kind of middle ground. They don't kind of fade in and fade out of anything. They're always 100% committed or they're not committed at all. Um, he was part of what G we call Jesus' inner circle because he had the 12 apostles, but there were three that we note throughout the Gospels who are particularly close to Jesus as if he was really kind of grooming them uh, in particular. And they would be, of course, first of all, Peter in, in five, Mark chapter 5, 37. Uh, it says, he did not, speaking of Jesus, let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. Uh, speaking about when he was going to do a healing in Capernaum. In Mark chapter 9 at the Transfiguration, again it says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him, and it says they were there with him alone. And again in chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, when they're in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is awaiting his arrest, it says that he took Peter, James, and John along with him to be essentially his prayer partners to support him during that time. He is therefore referred to by many as Jesus' closest uh, disciple because even back in chapter 13 of John's gospel, uh, it says one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And that's kind of an interesting story because at the Last Supper, the way you would sit at these formal banquets around what they called a triclinium table, it was a three-sided U-shaped table that was really uh, typical of the Russian banquet, or excuse me, Russian, I got Russian in my mind, uh, <coughs> Roman banquets, 
<laughs> one, or, one or the other. Um, and uh, essentially, the order in which you sat around the table indicated your status or your position. And John was in that first position next to Jesus. Jesus being the host would have been in the second slot. And then next to him would be the guest of honor. And it's interesting how it's laid out because John is in that first position. He's leaning on Jesus' breast. And basically, he's the host. He's responsible for providing the meal, serving the table. And that's a very honorable position. And then next to Jesus on the other side would have been the one that he wanted to honor. And it's fascinating because in the text it reveals that it's Judas Iscariot. So as Jesus is speaking to his disciples of his upcoming betrayal, he has actually posited, posted position Peter in the position of greatest honor at the table. And I have to think that there must have been a window of opportunity for Judas to repent of what he was about to do. But he is also the one who was entrusted with the welfare of Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, at, at, on the cross when it says when Jesus saw his mother there in chapter 19, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son and the disciple here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And so again, it indicates that special relationship that Jesus had because of all the 11 remaining apostles, disciples, John is the only one who is actually at the crucifixion with the women. <clears throat> the rest are in hiding. In, J in John's first letter to the church, in fact, he identifies himself as being an eyewitness. He opens that great letter by saying, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared and we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now the nature of that statement is pretty, uh, pretty complex and pretty all-inclusive. In other words, it doesn't leave any question not only to the fact that John was a witness and personally involved with Jesus in his ministry, but also the nature of who Jesus was. And he's saying this for the very same reason that we'll see that John wrote the gospel in the first place. And it's interesting because we'll find that one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, tells us that it wasn't even John's motivation personally to write it, but he was urged to do so by the bishops of the church to address a particular need. And so it is we find that not only within these statements, but historically from the second century on, we have evidence or writings of church fathers all attesting the fact that John the Apostle, the beloved of the Lord, was the one who was the author behind uh, this gospel. The question is to when and where was it written? Now tradition states that it was written from the city of Ephesus and <clears throat> we have no reason to think it shouldn't because the historical trail of John's life and eventually leads him to Ephesus when he writes that at some point in time between 90 and 110 AD Jerusalem had been destroyed by then in 70 AD by the Romans. Uh, Judea had essentially been depopulated of Jews and Christ the, the Jewish believers as well as Jews in general had dispersed 
many of them sold by slavery. The center of Judaism became Tiberias up in the, up in the north in Galilee. And so the idea that John would have been in that area, of course, doesn't seem very logical. In fact, we are told by uh, the historians that, our historian Eusebius, that the Christians in Jerusalem uh, knowing the prophecy of Jesus, speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, received also a prophetic warning that the time was for them to leave, that when they heard that the Roman legions were making their way from Galilee towards Jerusalem, they actually packed up and left Jerusalem and settled across the Jordan River in a city called Pella, and uh, so that many of the Jewish believers escaped the destruction of Jerusalem, whereas many others perished, obviously. But it's interesting, too, because we know that it's very possible for a very early date of composition of this letter, because uh, in the 1920s, there was a small papyrus fragment. It's about two and a half inches across, three and a half inches tall. A little tiny thing. It was found in a souk in Egypt, uh, and uh, a fellow, uh, an archaeologist, purchased it. It was uh, later, there it is, that later was delivered to um, uh, the Ryland Museum, our university in, in England, and therefore it was put in the John Ryland Museum because John Ryland was the guy who actually was the first one to essentially translate it and identify the translation because the translation we knew was a portion of John chapter 18. It's, a, it's only seven lines, but we know that it was clearly John uh, chapter 18. But it was called what called Hadrianic text. In other words, dating to the time of Emperor Hadrian in this period that we're talking about, about, about 117 to 135 AD, there was a very particular type of script that was used throughout uh, the uh, Greek world. It's like uh, writing today changes styles of writing. My parents had beautiful penmanship. I have a computer. And uh, so basically we, we can date it... A, to a large degree by just the style of text that was used. But again, it's been, the date has been estimated right around 90 to 110. Most peep scholars say John wrote it or was compiled in about 90 AD. Some have even suggested an even earlier date since for it to have already been in Egypt and distributed there means that it traveled either extremely quickly or else it was uh, much younger than we think it is. But what's fascinating about the, the text of John is that it differs so much from the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels we've referred to as the synoptics, and the word, it's a compound word, sin uh, in the Greek refers to being of the same optic, the same view. Those John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all take essentially the same view of the history of Jesus' ministry. They focus almost exclusively on Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry. In other words, if we didn't have the Gospel of John, we would only be able to say with certainty that Jesus' ministry lasted one year because he only tells us of him attending only one feast, the very last one, the final Passover in which he was executed. And it doesn't mention any other visits to Jerusalem. And yet John tells us of three separate journeys to, at Passover, as well as multiple other journeys. In other words, this is more representative of what we would expect of someone of that time, especially a very famous and influential rabbi. Because every Jew was supposed to make it to Jerusalem for three feasts every year. So that'd be three journeys from Galilee, which is about 120 miles to Jerusalem on foot. Uh, generally, if you weren't in a hurry, it would take them a couple of weeks to make the journey and a couple of weeks to return back. 
So we know that Jesus would undoubtedly have traveled there, but we couldn't confirm that without John's gospel because what John does in contrast to the others that focus upon his ministry in Galilee, he focuses almost exclusively on Jesus' ministry in Judea, the southern part of uh, the land of Israel today. And it's, uh, and it's distinct from that in a number of different, ra- different reasons. Um, but before I get into talking about some of the unique qualities of the book, um, let me answer the, the, the question really of why was it written. Now John gives a very clear purpose statement in chapter 20. He says that in, beginning in 20, or verse 30, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's a very evangelistic letter, if you will, and that shouldn't surprise most of us. I mean, John 3.16 is probably the most evangelistic verse used over and over again, and so much of our evangelism or sharing our faith comes out of statements that Jesus makes uh, within the Gospel of John. And that's why we often refer to John as John the Evangelist, because there's such an evangelistic quality to the letter. But uh, It's interesting because there's no other New Testament book that argues for the deity of Christ more strongly than John's gospel. Beginning with probably the the most powerful statement, the most clear statement of Christ's divinity in what we call the Logos passage. Uh, What do I mean by Logos? Well, in in John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word there is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S, we would transliterate it. And <coughs> today we use the term frequently because uh, <coughs> every organization in the world has a logos. It's their visual symbol. And what that symbol is done, supposed to do, if it's done well, is to represent and speak about in really a millisecond of observation what that organization is about. The, the more clear that Logos is, the more clear people know what it's about. So some organizations don't need much help. If you're IBM, everybody just pretty mo- much knows that IBM is involved with some kind of digital whiz-bang. Whiz Actually, it's international business machines back in the day when they had, many of you probably don't even know what a, a 10-key uh, calculator or uh, adding machine is. But anyway, uh, I'm old enough to have used them. <laughs> but the bottom line is that logos are these things that are supposed to send a very clear, precise, and instantaneous message. Well, he says, in the beginning was this logos. And this was a word that had meant originally just simply words or communication or something that is shared. But through the Greek philosophers, especially through Aristotle, it had taken on a whole different philosophical meaning where he used the word logos to refer about the, to talk about the divine expression the idea that, that w- the way that divinity expresses itself within the universe, and you see the, the, the representation of God, not only in the matter, in the physical world, but also in the immaterial, in our thoughts, in our minds, in our perceptions. And so when he uses this word, John is using a word that's loaded with philosophical and religious meaning to the people of his day. So when he says, in the beginning was the Logos, every Greek of the day, and Romans as well, would go, well, yeah, in the beginning was a Logos. They believed that the Logos was a way of describing that original force, that original source from which everything came. And they would have been in agreement. 
And then he says, when the Logos was with God, suddenly he's making a distinction that would be an introducing a new concept. That there is God the Father, but there is this other entity called the Logos. And then finally he says, and the Word was God. Well, you can see the implications right now. Furrow, brows furrowing, uh, uh, eyes squinting, people trying to, what are you saying? That we understand that there was this original creative force that made everything, but now you're telling us that this original creating force was with God and at the same time He was God and He's beginning to introduce us to the concept of the Trinity which is dealt with in more detail as we'll see in a moment in John's Gospel than any other book of the New Testament as well. But He goes on to describe Him. He was God, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. And in Him is life. We might add parenthetically the very essence of life itself. So that He is not only the one who creates it all, but everything emanates from Him. He is the source that sustains and maintains and, and regenerates and causes life to happen. So that as I was listening to the news report today where they were saying that um, our son is, is going to become a white dwarf, which means eventually it'll be in a Disney movie. No, what it means eventually is that it will, it will burn out and, and you know, kind of become a giant suck hole and will pull all matter to itself and everything on the planet Earth will be consumed. But they said not to worry, it's, it won't be for another two billion years. Well, I, I want to see that. But, you know, but the whole point is that we can talk about the extinction and, and postulate the idea of the destruction of life in, this, in the universe that we live in, but we still really have no good answers for where it started. What was the essence? And what John is saying is, where did it all come from? And in, in short, it come from the very logos of God, the very person of God himself. But it's in verse 14 where he brings us all together and he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And this is a very profound concept because the, even the Romans had the concept, and the Greeks to a lesser degree, but they had the concept of men becoming gods, rising to the level of godhood. But the idea that God would come and become one of us and would die at our hands, now this again was a radical thought to introduce into the conversation. And he goes on to say, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Those 14 verses are probably one of the highest uh, passages in all of English literature. And I can't speak for other languages, but it is a literary work of genius, a magnificent expression uh, that is whether a person embraces the theology or not, you have to marvel at its structure. It's a, a, a beautiful statement. But again, this, is, this becomes just setting the tone for the rest of the book because in, in chapter 10, for example, he says, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And it's an interesting, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one in the plural, it's one together. There, there's more than one of us here, but we are one together. So we often speak of ones in plurals, in plurality. We talk about one team or one week. Uh, you know, we, we gather uh, a number of things together and call and see the oneness and the unity in it. 
Jesus said to them, I and my Father are like that. We are distinct and yet we are one. And we find as the interchange between Jesus and the uh, religious leaders begins to uh, become more confrontational, this becomes the real issue. You call yourself the Son of God, making yourself equal with God. So that John just really, really is crystal clear of Jesus' declaration of his own deity in ways that may not be readily apparent to a a 21st century American, but were overwhelmingly apparent to a first century Jew. They didn't miss it for a moment. And then, of course, the great statement, even John, uh, or excuse me, of Thomas, when he puts his hands in the holes of Jesus' side and his hands and his feet, and, and he falls down and declares, my Lord and my God. Uh, you know, it's a, now the, the Jehovah Witnesses are interesting because uh, when you ask them, well, if Jesus isn't God, which they argue, then, then why did John, Thomas say, my Lord and my God? And they said, oh, he was just making an exclamatory statement, kind of like, well, my Lord, my God. <laughs> you know, kind of like you might say, OMG. Well, um, it's silly. I just thought I'd throw it out there unless you have that conversation because they do come by regularly, except not to my house anymore. But <laughs> anyway... Uh, but why did, why did John write this with such a strong emphasis upon two things? One, the fact that Jesus is God, and secondly, that Jesus is man. He's not part man and part God. He's fully God, and yet he's fully man. I know you're saying, but how do you explain that? I don't. I don't even really understand it. It's kind of when people say, well, I don't believe in the Trinity because I can't comprehend it. I mean, think about how silly that statement is. I don't believe in God because I can't comprehend him. That's kind of the idea of being God. <laughs> it's like God is incomprehensible. I mean, the idea is that there's more to him than you and I could ever grasp. And that's the same thing. We have the statement that's given to us by Jesus, recorded by John, transmitted to us through the church. But the simple fact is that it's an incomprehensible thing, and yet it's stated with such precision that we would be doing injustice to the text itself to come up with any other conclusion that Jesus is fully God and he is also fully man. And John drives this point home. Well, we're told by one of the early church fathers writing, he wrote about 270 AD, a guy by the name of Victorinus. Um, he tells us that all the bishops compelled John to draw up his testimony. In other words, as John was coming to the, those last days of his life or years of his life, that the bishops, the spiritual leaders of the church, literally we call them the pastors of these areas of ministry, came to him and said, we need for you to write down and state for, for, our, for posterity the truths that you have seen. These would have been stories that they'd heard from John communicating and relating through his teaching for decades. But they said, would you write them down because we have a particular need. And what was that need? Well, Irenaeus, who was another church father, wrote in about 170 AD, uh, not too long after uh, John's uh, death. And he says, John, the disciple of the Lord, preaches this faith and seeks by the proclamation of the gospel to remove that error which by Serinthus, Serinthus was an early what we call Gnostic Christian, we'll explain, explain in a moment who those are, what Gnostic Christians were, but had been di- disseminated among men and a long time previously by those termed Nicolaitans, 
And the Nicolaitans, were, he goes on to tell us, were followers of Nicholas, who was one of the first seven deacons. So in the book of Acts, they chose seven deacons. One of them was, the name, was named Nicholas, and he apparently created a heresy. And it says, they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. And so it appears that the theology of the Nicolaitans was basically, you can do anything you want uh, because it, it, it doesn't really matter in the mind of God. There is, the flesh is, is, the matter is evil, and therefore you're not responsible for what you do with your body because it's also made of matter. It's interesting because this essentially became part of the Gnostic teaching as well. And I think it's important for us, even though those of you who are beginning to get bored with the conversation at this point, it's important to realize that every single book of the New Testament, except for Philemon, all give warnings about false teachings, false doctrines. In other words, people who are coming in and trying to represent the, the God in ways that were not truly true of Him. We call it just simply false doctrine or heretical teachings. The word heresies literally means to divide, to separate. And so there's these divisive teachings that would come in. And Gnosticism was the first major uh, theological challenge to the Gentile church. Uh, before this was Judaizers, and we'll talk about in the book of Acts. They were basically Christ Jews who had become Christians and insisted that in order to be saved, you had to be not only ask Jesus into your heart, but you had to become a Jew, which included being circumcised. And they were called, we call them today Judaizers. That was the first heresy in the church. But the second one, which really rose up amongst the Gentiles in the first and second and third century and became a real challenge to the church, was Gnosticism. In fact, you might be surprised, it's still... Uh, it's kind of made a resurgence over the last few years, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But what did the Gnostics actually believe? Well, Gnosticism was a Greek philosophy that basically adopted Christianity uh, or the teachings of Christ in part. And it started off with a guy who, named Marcion who wrote his own version of the Gospels and uh, basically rejected everything that, that, uh, the, that talked about the deity of Christ. In fact, what the Gnostics believed was that you should follow Jewish law and practice asceticism. In other words, you live a life of humility by being poor. That if you're going to be a, a spiritual person, you need to be a, a poor person. You need to live in rags. I love what Socrates said to one of the uh, cynic philosophers who had the same concept as they were arguing. Socrates looked at him and said, I can see your pride through the holes in your robe. And it's a, I think it's a profound statement. But, you know, it's basically you can be proud even of your poverty. Pride has a way of expressing itself in unending ways <laughs> because it comes out of the heart and not by what you put on or don't put on. But they practiced this, but they, what they did is most notably is they created a whole set of their own writings, in particular what we call Gnostic Gospels. And why we know so much about the Gnostic Gospels is because in 1945, in a place in Egypt called Nag Hammadi, there was a discovery of an entire library of these writings. And some of them you probably have heard, most, pop, most famous, of course, is the Gospel of Thomas 
where Thomas talks about Jesus as a five-year-old boy is, is uh, accused of being an idolater by his playmates because he's on the side of the creek taking clay and molding it into little figures of birds and other little animals. And of course, you can't make an image. And so his, his friends ran to the rabbi and said, he's, he's making idols. And the rabbi comes racing down to see Jesus making these little mud figures. And then Jesus, to prove that he isn't an idolater, picks them up in his hand, he breathes on them, they come to life and fly away. They have a lot of miracle stories of Jesus, but they are really, really hard to believe. I mean, they're just ridiculous off-the-wall kind of stuff like that. Um, There's other ones. There's the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Judas, by the way. Uh, It's where the idea that the the Muslims have that Jesus uh, didn't actually die. The one who died was actually Judas was hung in his place. And Jesus, because Jesus didn't actually have a physical body, he just appeared to have a physical